0: I don't know reality why I'm up here, and the man I was talking to at lunch, Dave's older brother, Dennis is not speaking. <laughs> um, it was uh, it was I don't know if you know this, Tim. Where are you? David is where's my brother, Tim? You know that David is one of seven children, and uh, six boys. One girl, three pastors. (laughs) I'm going, whoa. And he said, you know why I think that the the kids in my family wanted to be pastors? What? Because they said my parents lived it. You know? I think, praise God for your parents and how the church has been blessed by their faithfulness. So it's great to meet you, Gary and Dennis. Just such a delight. Well, I I have the privilege of speaking on the need for pastoral care this evening. I'm going to read out of, I've wondered what Bible to read out of, and I brought the ESV, but it's harder and harder for me to read this little thing. (laughs) And I didn't want to bring my big one. And so I'm going to read the, the, well, I see I've got it. In this, in the King James. You know, do you mind if I read it out of the King James? Uh, I'm at the point where I, I read the King James in my own life. So I'm um, just going to read. And I'm going to read two chapters. And we're going to just take. Uh, Excuse me. Yeah, all right. We're gonna take a couple of the uh, verses and tease at them and poke and prod them a little bit rather than, don't, I'm not gonna try and deal with all two chapters, but I, I think these two chapters of Second Corinthians set a tone that is in some respects as important as the, the specific content of each of the verses. The overall tone is in this section at least of Second Corinthians important. Remember in First Corinthians, Paul's dealing with the failings of the, the church at Corinth. Second Corinthians there may have been a, an epistle. They suggest <clears throat> in between these, there are also some suge- suggestion that there was a visit in between. There's a brief flying visit. We don't know, but many of the problems that were in evidence in the first the first letter to the the church at Corinth are also in view in the in the second letter. And by the end of the book, Paul is just in out-and-out sort of attack mode, defending himself. And it's, it's both defense and offense together. And he's, he's defending his authority, he's defending his ministry, he's defending the type of man he is and what he's done. And really, I think if we're going to talk about the need for pastoral care which is my topic we have to begin by defining what a pastor looks like and what pastoral care looks like and and if we don't have an idea and i'm not sure we really do have an idea in this day of what a pastor is and what and therefore what pastoral care consists of in fact i think that to many of us the content of second corinthians 10 and 11 is almost foreign. It just, you know, we have no, no connection with it, with no way to comprehend what's going on here and why Paul's saying the things he says. So let me read them, and then we'll, we'll, we'll jump into considering them. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence and am base among you, but being absent and bold toward you, But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ, let him, think, let him, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority which the Lord has given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure as though we reached not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things without our measure, that is of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. <laughs> to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. But he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not the he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Would to God that you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom you have not preached or if you receive another spirit which you've not received or another gospel which you've not accepted you might well bear with him for I suppose I wasn't a bit behind the very chiefest apostles but though I'd be rude in speech yet not in knowledge we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things have I committed an offense in abasing myself that you might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. And when I was present with you and and had want, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the, the brothers which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things, I've kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Wherefore, because I love you not, God knoweth. But what I do, that I will do, and that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed, as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works." I say again, let no man think me a fool. If otherwise, as yet as a fool, receive me, that I may boast myself a little. That which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly. In this confidence of boasting, seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also, for you suffer fools gladly, seeing ye you yourselves are wise. For you suffer if a man brings you into bondage, if a man devours you, if a man takes of you, if a man exalts himself, if a man smites you in the face. I speak as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak. Howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. In deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times I received forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered a shipwreck, a night and a day I've been in sleep, in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen. In perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. (coughs) Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? If I must need's glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, kept the city of the the Damascenes with a garrison, desirous to apprehend me. Through a window and a basket was I let down by the wall and escaped his hands. This is the word of God. Remember, it is inspired word, this recounting. This defense is, <clears throat> is not the word of a man, but it's the word of God through the man. And so, let's pray and ask God to reveal something of this, this great calling that we have through these, these words of this wonderful man, this apostle. Father, we thank you for Apostle Paul, for his courage for the example he sets before us of his life. Thank you for the humility that lets this man argue and put himself before us in all his painful glory. As our example and as one that we are to emulate, and may we do so, and may you be glorified and may your son be lifted up, and may men and women come to eternal life, be preserved in their faith as a result of our heeding the example of this man. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We, I say, have come to a point where I really don't think the majority of people, the majority of the church, at least the Protestant Evangelical Reformed Church in North America, understands pastoral care at all. How did we get here? I, I have my theories and I'll, I'll entertain you with them briefly. I think it began with, with. Uh, if you think about the evangelical world, there's nothing in it. Uh, I say that uh, knowing that there's the exception, but they prove the rule. There's nothing in the evangelical world <clears throat> that's older at this point than 90 years. Uh, it's it's come to being in the last 90 years. Therefore, it, it was, it's its origin was was sort of coterminous with the ending of certain other things. As the mainline Christian witness that became known as the mainline churches was dying, the evangelical church was beginning. And Tim's and my dad, and I don't know that your background, but our background was one of our father, I was telling you, Dennis, during supper, our dad growing up Presbyterian in New York City, assuming his life was going to be spent in the Presbyterian church, going off to Wheaton College, um, applying to Princeton Seminary, which was simply the the Presbyterian Seminary. I've mentioned this to the class I've taught in the last few weeks. that was that Princeton was not a fancy school. It was just where you went if you were on the northeast side of the United States and you were going to be a Presbyterian pastor. Accepted to, to Princeton. And then, you know, Aware that during those years, those last years of the 30s, that Princeton was blowing apart and people were leaving over the modernist controversy and, and, and that Princeton was not what it had been. The days of the Hodges and Alexander and, and all when B.B. Warfield were gone and Princeton was now a place where the conservatives and those who, who loved the word of God had departed. And so our father, we have a, a carbon copy of a letter he wrote his roommate Explaining in seven single single space typewritten pages why he was turning down his acceptance at Princeton and going to go to this tiny little seminary that had no denominational background in Wilmington, Delaware, known as Faith Seminary, rather than go to, to Princeton. It's an act that many of you have taken the corollary of in our day by coming to, to Clear Note and to Reformed Evangelical Pastors College. Uh, but our father and these men, Francis Schaeffer and others among them who were there at, at faith at that time. I'll be messing with it the whole time. That's, that's, this oh, my ear. Ow. That's fine. Uh, Nothing bothers me more than these things. And I I have one at my church that goes over both ears, and I'm constantly messing with it and getting it straight with my glasses, and I want my glasses behind the wire. And I, you know. So I'm sure I'm going to have problems still, but thank you, David. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. At least I'm not picking my beard as I'm doing it, right? (laughs) So. These men went, went off to school, and they had nowhere to go. And there was just an entire generation that was like that. They didn't have a church to come out and serve in. They were, they were churchless people. And so they went into the, the parachurch, and the parachurch was founded out of that generation. And those who had gone off to war, who were of the same age, and who came back and said, we want to change the world for Christ, and the church that they knew was dead, it had just been blown to smithereens, and so they started the parachurch, and they saw the focus on a specific demographic and the the, the sort of market driven. I'm not saying that in a bad way, because our father was one of those who started interVarsity, and it was there was glory in those in those young men and women who worked back then in the parachurch. But they they took the lessons they'd learned and they put them to to work in the parachurch, and they've created really powerful organizations. So you've got the Navigators, and you have um, Campus Crusade shortly thereafter, InterVarsity back then, all these things flowering. Many of the missions that we're aware of today came into being then. Just the evangelical world was being was cropping up. It was coming up you know, like the crocuses in the spring all over the place back then. And, uh, and these things were effective. And, uh, and people had really strong loyalties to these organizations. When our dad was in his mid-60s, he took the presidency of a nonprofit organization. And uh, it, it didn't have as much money as it should have because it was a, the Christian medical society. It should have had plenty of money, but the doctors didn't give much to it. And so dad went to an old old student in InterVarsity during the days that he had been the Northeast Regional Director for the United States, and he'd been out of InterVarsity 30 years at that point, 25 years. But he went to a guy named Ken Olson. How many of you know who Ken Olson was? No? Founder of Digital Equipment, one of the big, and he went and said, I want a, main, I want a computer for the CMS. And just like that, Ken Olson gave a $50,000 computer back in the late 70s, early 80s to that's the kind of commitment these men had. But but there was it was a two-speed world because as this was going on, there were also the mainline evangelical churches, and they were going one way, and they were sort of stayed, and then there was the parachurch, and boy, it, it saw things happening. And so, you know, the big thing in Wheaton every three years was urbana would happen. And you'd leave your church, which was sort of stodgy and didn't have modern music, and only had one pastor, and you and you go down to Urbana, and it would be it would be exciting to be around people who were alive, and uh, and yet there was a there was a sort of a, a split. The evangelical world had stodgy churches, and it had the parachurch where, where all the action was. And in the 70s, that began to change, and it began to change in part because of the realization by a guy named Bill Hybels that you could take the parachurch and apply it to the church. You could could make sort of demographic choices, you could concentrate on populations, and you could see the same kind of broad results that were part of the parachurch. When I was in 1976, I believe it was in January of 76, I went up with my church, which was a big church in the Chicago was Tim's Church. We went up on a on a winter retreat. We had 70 kids on our winter retreat. We thought, "Wow, we're going to rule this camp." And uh, we were we were up there. We got we got out. We had a guy, Mark Holmes, who played the guitar. We were cool because we had a guitar that was playing our music, and uh, and then. After our first session at night, greyhound after greyhound started pulling in. Oh, and they just unloaded this, all this electronic equipment, drum sets, and we we sat there and our eyes and from Wheaton, our eyes grew bigger. And what is this? And there were about seven hundred kids. It was Sun City. How many of you know have heard of Sun City? You know what it was. It became Willow Creek. It was Bill Heibel's sort of parachurch youth organization that became Willow Creek. And uh, and so Willow Creek brought the parachurch into the church. And at that point, the understanding of pastoral care took a real hit. You know, um, things proceeded down that, And I think the next step has been... Um, has been the entry of that model into even really conservative, reformed, and evangelical churches where now you have men like John Piper and um, Mark Driscoll and others who are men we love and have respect for who have come to understand pastoral ministry to be something that's done on the large scale. So they have video campuses and pastoral care The actual shepherding of souls, the hands-on, nitty-gritty, down-and-dirty, care for the souls of the sheep is gone. And it's just not there in the evangelical world. It's disappearing. It's a dying breed. We're seeking to reclaim it. Um, I I, want to begin by thinking about the character of Paul because I don't think we can understand the need for pastoral care how we go about reclaiming pastoral care without reclaiming the the character of a truly godly pastor. Years ago, our dad wrote a column for eternity on what a modern church... uh, um, What do you call the committee? The candidating committee. The uh, search committee. committee. What a modern search committee would say if the Apostle Paul (laughs) sent in his resume. (laughs) And uh, I, I don't remember what he said. I do know that he, he said they, they'd certainly not take him for one reason. He's single, you know. They're not going to have a single man. Sorry, Jason. <laughs> but you know, I mean, how many churches are willing to have a single man as his pastor? Well, there were two things that Dad didn't mention that I think have become essential for pastors today, and they tell us it tells us something about the about the nature of our understanding of pastoral ministry and pastoral care, that these things are, are essential or are at least desirable. Um, two things that would have been objections that, that people would have today, would be objections today to the Apostle Paul is that, first, far from being handsome, Paul was of plain appearance at best. And he acknowledges this in 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, where he says, what does he say? He says that people complain that his personal appearance, his personal presence, is unimpressive. Unimpressive. That's the, uh, the verdict on the great apostle. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak or unimpressive. He's, he's unimpressive. Unimpressive. You know, he doesn't make anyone want to pay attention to him. He, he looks like a schmuck. He looks Jewish and, and perhaps a little bit, if we're going to believe some of the apocryphal accounts, bow-legged and bald and, and weird eyes. And, a, and according to those apocryphal letters about Paul, um, a, a unibrow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what they say. Now they're 180 AD and they're probably totally apocryphal, but I like that idea. Unimpressive. Unimpressive, the death knell for a modern evangelical reformed pastor. Those we would have as our leaders must look the part. They must be imposing. They must be handsome. They must be fetching. So much pastoring today is built on appearance. And if you're ugly, there's hope. There's hope that a hipster veneer will cover a multitude of defects in your appearance. All right? Yeah, so... If you can't grow dreads, if you can't do it on your own, dreadlocks and, and, uh, and Birkenstocks, and you might just get by, right? It's appearance. By his own account, Paul is unimpressive. And in this, of course, despite the attempts of painters over the centuries to paint Jesus as a handsome dude, he follows in the footsteps of Christ, who Scripture tells us had nothing in his appearance that men should be attracted to him. Simply unimpressive, unimpressive physically. Not much to look at, not much in appearance. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra, and when they're there, they run across a man who is crippled from birth, but never walked. Paul was preaching, they we're told in Acts 14, and as he's preaching, he's looking out on the on the crowd, and he sees this man, and somehow he notices that the man is listening and that, and that the man has the faith to be healed. And so the Bible says that looking intently at the man, Paul said to him in a loud voice, Stand up and walk. Or no, stand upright on your feet. And the man stands upright and begins walking and there's just this tremendous explosion within the town of Lystra. Because people say, whoa, the gods have come down to earth and have visited us. And they credit Barnabas with being, you know who they credit Barnabas with being? Zeus. Zeus and Paul with being Hermes. Now, it's Mercury in, in the Roman pantheon, but in the, in the Greek it's Hermes and, and Zeus. Which is really striking. They say It says that they credited Paul because he was the one who spoke with being Hermes. But... It seems to me that there's more at work there than that. Paul is the one who told him to walk. Paul is the one who's preaching. Paul is the one, and yet they say of Barnabas, "Oh, Zeus," and of Paul, "Hermes." Now, Zeus is the father of gods. He's the firstborn. He is he's called by all the other gods father. He's actually Hermes' father. Hermes is a sort of trickster messenger god who is sly and devious and a little bit disreputable. And, uh, and, and Hermes is, is a pale reflection of his father. And I think we see something there of the way the two impressed the crowd. You know? They say, oh, Barnabas. Whoa, now there's a man we can worship. And there's his messenger. And uh, Paul's the messenger, despite the fact that Paul is obviously the one who did the miracle. Paul, Calvin himself, now this isn't just my idea, all right? I was happy to see that Calvin himself says that the Lycaonians were, were, were wrong for preferring Barnabas before Paul. So Paul, Calvin actually reads it that way as well. You, do you doubt that, that part of the reason that they preferred Barnabas and called him Zeus is that he was more impressive to look at than Paul? Paul? Not only was Paul unimpressive physically, but as he acknowledges in verse 10, he's a man whose speech is considered contemptible. Now in 11.6, he sounds this theme again by saying, but though I be rude in speech, so rude and contemptible. Now I know know, I've, I've heard all about the man Don Carson in his book called Exegetical Fallacies, all right? So let's just try a few exegetical fallacies by doing them. All right. All right, You know, every once in a while, you do it. And do you know what the word that's translated unskilled or rude in 11.6, unskilled, N-A-S-B, rude by the King James Version is in the Greek? Can you guess? Paul says, I know I'm considered rude of speech. Unskilled, rude. Well, the word in the, in the Greek is... Idiotase. <laughs> so he says, I, I know I'm an idiot. Now there's the fallacy, right? But it's no fallacy. It's exactly what it means. I know I'm, you look at me as though I'm an idiot. Not good looking, not impressive, not eloquent, not, uh, not anything but a rude, unadmirable, contemptible idiot. In what he says. And there are these super apostles that Paul refers to in 11.5. These men that Paul says he's not in the least inferior to, yet who are preferred by the Corinthians to, to his own rude and unimpressive self. Calvin suggests that Paul has the preeminent apostles Peter and John in mind when he speaks of super apostles. <clears throat> but I think that in this book where Paul has to deal time after time with the Corinthians' preference of one apostle over another and the divisions that this kind of a party spirit bring, that it's more likely that Paul has in mind one of the men who are being preferred to Paul by the Corinthians who are mentioned in the first book, the first epistle to the Corinthians. And their identities are clear in the first epistle. One of them is Peter, because some people are saying, I'm of, I'm of Paul. Others say, I'm of Apollos. Others of Cephas and others still of Christ. So Peter is one possibility. But again and again in, in 1 Corinthians, one name stands out above the others. That name is uh, 1 Corinthians 1.12. Paul says, now I, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Then in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Then again in 1 Corinthians 3, what then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Then in, in later in that chapter, he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas of the world or life or death of things present or things to come. And then in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I've applied these things, brethren, to, figuratively, to myself and Apollos for your sakes. So I think the question comes down to if it's one of the if it's the party spirit and the super apostle is someone that we're going to know it's probably one of these guys who's who's evident in chapter in in 1 Corinthians as a a as a point of division in 2 Corinthians being the the super apostle not only is there that there's there's this as well about Apollos and I've Privately, you can reject this. It doesn't make any difference to the real argument of this passage at this point about pastoral care. But I think in my mind, it fits that Apollos is the guy that that people are preferring to Paul in 1 Corinthians. And what do we read in Scripture about Apollos? Now, a Jew named Apollos, this is Acts 18. An Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. And he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but he was acquainted only with the baptism of John. (coughs) And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him, wrote to the disciples to welcome him, and when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. It happened, we're told in Acts right there, that, that that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Now, Apollos is eloquent, and he's in Corinth, the church that was founded several years before his arrival there by Paul, when, when Paul encounters disciples of Apollos in Ephesus. Remember, he came to the Lord in Ephesus, and he was teaching a defective gospel there. And Priscilla and Aquila say, hey, you need to learn more. So Paul's coming to Ephesus, and he's learning about Apollos, and, and he's encountering these disciples, and he, he says, do you not know the baptism of the Spirit? And they say, no, i never heard. And so he says, well, let me tell you about it. And he baptizes them in the Spirit. And so Paul works in Ephesus for nearly three years, building the church there. Meanwhile, Apollos is in Corinth, the church that Paul had started several years prior to this, for most of that span of time when when Paul is in Ephesus. So they've sort of crossed paths, you understand? Now in the first letter of the Corinthians, Paul specifically rebukes their championing one apostle against another. In the second letter, he's again dealing with these, these, these sinful comparisons. Comparisons in which he, favors, he figures quite unfavorably against some super apostle or apostles who are eloquent and powerful. And in contrast with, he seems rude and unimpressive. And I suggest it's Apollos, that he's the silver-tongued orator. No doubt a great man of God, but but pride and failure were part of Peter's life. And even Peter comes under Paul's scrutiny and is marked in Scripture as one who failed to shepherd the flock accurately. And so despite the glory of Apollos, I think it's entirely possible. I think actually given the shoe that Paul has in his hand, that it fits Apollos' foot. You know, the shoe he's describing fits one foot, and it's Apollos. You don't have to. It may not be. But then it's some other super apostle who's teaching in Corinth, who's impressive in speech and in appearance in comparison with Paul. The question is, who would you rather be? Who would you rather be? Which of these apostles would you rather look like and speak like and act like and be regarded as? The, the eloquent, oh, so impressive intellectually, oh, so commanding physically, super apostle, whether it's Apollos or someone else, or Paul. Paul, weak of eye, unimpressive of build, rude of speech, an idiot, contemptible. doesn't matter if it's Apollos. Whoever Paul's facing, whoever he's being compared with is impressive in these very areas where Paul is unimpressive. Who would you rather be? Now, I I don't need to ask, do I? Every one of us, every one of us knows that we would rather be eloquent and impressive and silver-tongued and esteemed. And we would choose not to be known as contemptible, rude, unimpressive. And we tell ourselves we have good reason for choosing so. Our desires are sanctified in this area, we would say to ourselves, for it's the calling of a pastor to convince. The calling of the pastor is to command and exhort and proclaim. And if this is the job of a pastor, then the gifts of an Apollos are the best gifts. Some years ago, I was a pastor in a little troubled denomination, and we were part, our church was part of a a conference in that denomination that was particularly unwilling to heed scripture, doing things that ranged from filing a lawsuit as a conference of churches against a member in good standing of one of our churches, accusing him of having misbuilt our camp, refusing to practice discipline, and filing lawsuits. They were ordaining women, they were... And year after year, several conservative men in that conference and I would go to our what was called annual conference, where we'd gather for a week of deliberations to do the main work of the conference, every year and here preaching. and we would go to that conference, and we would, we would stand and we would declare God's truth. And I, it wasn't for nothing that we were the tallest guys in that denomination, all three of us. Yeah. All the other guys looked about as, as big as John Piper and Wayne Grudem, end by end, you know. Uh, little men, and we'd stand there, and my, some of you know my former associate, Gary, who's about 6'4", isn't he, and about 280 pounds, and George Krieger, who you bought these chairs through, was 6'3", and a basketball player, and, and we'd go there, and I was the shortest of them. We'd go there and we would declare God's truth. We even arranged one year to have a debate over the ordination of women. And uh, the debate was was a highlight of that year. It's the best attended conference meeting we ever had in all the 13 years I was there. We couldn't get anyone who would debate us from our conference. So we brought an old retired bishop in to debate us. And uh, he came and he didn't know what he was facing. I mean, we dismantled him. We tore him to pieces. And... uh, in the argument. So bad, it was such a devastating defeat for the, for the pro-women's ordination side that after the debate, a number of the younger wives who generally were more conservative, their husbands were more biblical, a number of the younger wives went down to the lakefront. Two of the wives showed up a little late. They had stopped by the women's room with their kids and they'd been in a stall when two of the old sort of battle-axe women of the conference had come in, women who were leaders in their churches, on their board of their church and all and they had come in to the, um, to the bathroom, the younger wives were in the stalls, and uh, the younger wives came and said to the other women, "You know what they said?" I said, "What?" I said, These two old women came, and one said to the other, "I wish the women's side had prepared as well as the Bible side." <laughs> Uh, We, You know, we tore them apart. We would stand, we would declare, and no one would oppose us. But we'd lose every vote. And this went on for year after year. Until it became increasingly clear to me that something was messed up in our goals. That all our debates and statements and power was unprofitable. That in fact, the only thing that was getting stroked in all those years of going to to conference was our pride. Because nothing was changing. We were content with speech that didn't lead to change. Do any of us doubt that it's the goal of the pastorate to effect change by the power of God? But how are we to bring change about? What will that change look like? What are the tools we employ to bring it about? These are the challenges of our day. No one's gonna deny that some form of pastoral care is necessary, but what does true pastoral care look like? How is it accomplished? These are the questions that I wanna answer in the remainder of our time. So I have four questions about pastoral care which are fundamental to our day and our work questions that I believe we find answered in our passage. One, what is the purpose of pastoral care? Two, what is the focus of pastoral care? Three, the power of pastoral care. Four, the method of pastoral care. The purpose first of pastoral care. In verse 2 of chapter 10, Paul tells the Corinthians that he doesn't want to have to come to them wearing his power on his sleeve. He He doesn't want to have to be bold against those who suspect him of walking according to the flesh. Now his meaning there, when he says that, I don't want to be bold against those of you who who accuse me or suspect me of walking according to the flesh, is that there are those who want to judge him in accord with worldly, fleshly standards. They are, in fact, judging him on the basis of how impressive he is. They measure him by worldly standards. Is he impressive physically? Is he cultured? Can he quote Plato? Does he sound really reasonable to the Corinthians, which was, remember, a a chief of the Greek city-states back under the the Peloponnesus in the south of Greece in the time of the Greek Empire, and still a very prominent city of learning and trade under Rome. Here he is. He's in Ephesus, there in Corinth. He knows that he's being judged inadequate in human-worldly terms by those he's led to the Lord, the people in Corinth. And he says to them, hey, guys, I beg you, don't force me to show the power of my confidence. Don't force me to come to you in my power, revealing the basis for the boldness, which I fear I'm going to have to display in your midst when I come to you. In other words, this is appeal to them. He's saying, change course before I get there. Uh, uh, what he's doing, I'll tell you what he's doing. He's counting to three. One, two, three. And my family, uh, it's Pavlov's dog. When I say, one, two, I have Nathan's eyes on me, even if he doesn't want it. Now, I know you say, oh, you should never count to three for your kids. Well, sometimes they're there and you're here. And a, a one is yeah, is a real helpful word. All right. And uh, so i found that if you vary the count a little bit, just like Peyton Manning will speed up the count and slow it, you get, you get a fact. You get a response. And, uh, and this is what Paul's doing here. He's saying, look, I have a power, and I'm coming, and you don't want me angry because then you'll see the reason for my boldness and the basis of my boldness. this is not an appeal to the Corinthians that's based on worldly measures or standards. It's expressly opposed to the criteria they're judging him on. He doesn't care about how he looks. He doesn't care about how he sounds. He doesn't care about their judgments of him which are according to the flesh because his powers are not powers of the flesh. He's not about tats and ponytails. He's not about sound bites and worldly sophistication. He's not about coffee shops And Birkenstocks, these are nothing to him, less than nothing. He is about power. He is about Christ, and they can judge him a Rube from Iowa or a Yahoo from Toledo or an effeminate guy from Bloomington. It doesn't matter to him. It's immaterial. He doesn't give a rip how they judge him in worldly terms because he is serving Christ and his glory is not inside him. It's not external in his flesh. It's not even internal in his flesh. His glory resides in the one he serves. Not so the glory of the super apostles. 10.10, they commend themselves. I remember years ago going to a healing service at a, at a church in the west side of Toledo and the Indian evangelist who was there to, to work the miracles in that healing service made sure that there was a video shown of his works of power in India where he had raised the dead. You know, and so he comes to us having had a video of people telling about how he raised the dead before he showed up on the stage of Westside Church. How much of ministry is self-commendation? How much have we said that this is really the way to do ministry? You know? So very piously, and all credit to the Holy Spirit, toot our own horn and tell what we've accomplished. 10.10, they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another. And we may think that they're ne- measuring themselves against one another in a negative light. You know and saying? I'm better than he, and I'm, you know, I, I don't think that's the meaning. I think the meaning is that they're self-validating. They say, oh, he's a cool dude, and I'm like him. And we're together. And isn't it great that we're together for the gospel? You know, we're really doing great things. Self-validating. Measuring themselves by one another, comparing themselves with one another. Paul says to that, we were the first to come to you with the gospel of Christ. says to the Corinthians, come on, men. You're listening to these self-promoters. And remember how you came to know the Lord Jesus. And he's, he's claiming his power. And then in 1112, they claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. And I think at this point, we have cause to question significant portions of the entire apparatus of modern evangelical and reformed pastoral care. Isn't it the case that whole organizations have blossomed in recent decades, organized by men who want to be measured by the friends they keep, by the way that they compare with other men? Self-attesting, mutually supporting, self-laudatory, testimonials to each other. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And Apostle Paul won't have a bit of it. His testimony is the lives of the people he led to the Lord. He says, I have nothing more and I need nothing more. And I'll have nothing less. I led you to the Lord. It's sufficient for the super apostles to look good. It is sufficient for Paul only that Jesus is glorified by men and women repenting and turning to Christ in faith. Their purposes diverge. What is the purpose of pastoral care? For some, it's to look and sound wise and significant. Now, we're going to go on and and explain. Look into why that's their goal, and they they have reasons for it. But let's begin by saying, for many, the goal is to look and sound significant and wise. For Paul, the only goal is change of life, repentance, new birth, faith, and growth in obedience. Do we want to look good, or do we want to see people change? The the pastor who brought me to Toledo was a a convert from Judaism. His name was Pastor Goldsmith. And uh, I thought a lot about Pastor Goldsmith in the decades I've been a pastor because the man couldn't be held to one denomination. He uh I think he began as a Baptist, independent Baptist. And then he went <laughs> I and mean, there's a certain logical coherence here, but you gotta know church history to see it. He went Mennonite. And uh and uh then he went Baptist again and then he went United Brethren and and I mean, he was everywhere. He was uh he was he liked a new car and a shiny suit. He was, if there's any truth to the Jewish ability to make money out of nothing, he represented every town he'd go to. He'd buy a, he'd buy an apartment building. And so he had apartment buildings all over the sort of middle Midwest or houses that he'd bought and renovated and that he'd sell. And he always had a nice new Chrysler. And uh, Pastor Goldsmith was... He was, in one sense, the worst preacher I've ever heard in my life. You know, he, he could not string together a logical argument. Um, and yet every time he preached, you could tell that this man was excited about Jesus. And every church he had grew. And in every church where he'd been a pastor, there were dozens of, within, year, within a year or two, there'd be dozens of new Christians. You know, dozens. The best guy I've ever seen in talking to people and telling them why they needed to give their lives to Christ and repent. Unbelievable. And I tell you, he was a joke, in a sense, as a preacher. And I thought to myself <laughs> many times, would I rather be Pastor Goldsmith or would I rather be me? You know, the well-read guy who has a subscription to the New Yorker, the guy who never looks quite like a Jewish shyster or a used car salesman, you know? And all of us, <laughs> I think I speak for us, we don't want to look like Pastor Goldsmith. We don't want a ministry like Pastor Goldsmith's, an itinerant one. But what glory. The only goal of, of the pastor is to care for a flock in, the, in a way that leads it to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ and more members to be born into it. Every other measure of a pastor is vanity. Uh, my next points are shorter and we'll be done, all right? What is the focus of pastoral care? And this is, again, an important one. And I think this explains how we justify wanting to look good. In distinguishing between himself and the super apostles, Paul makes the point in 10.5... That by the power of his apostolic ministry, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. this, uh, This is a fundamental point. False apostles concentrate on the mind by making arguments and by producing lofty opinions and elevated rhetoric. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses here is one I'm going to do that, that, that trash exegesis on again, all right? I'm going to try. I'm going to com- commit a fallacy, an exegetical error of the rankest sort, learning to be rude. Now, the word translated arguments, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. The word that's translated "arguments" in the English Standard Version, or "speculations" by the New American Standard, does anyone want to give a guess what it is? What? What? No, no, no. It's 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 better and worse. Better for the point I want to make. Worse in terms of it's a little gizmos. Logic. I mean, it's a direct transliterated to our logic. Okay? So, you know, Jung's literal translation, which is often helpful to see what a literal says, we destroy reasoning. And yeah, that's what a, a literal translation might say. We destroy logic. We, we destroy logic or logics, because I think it's plural and every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ now kittle and here i'm getting elevated cuz i did trash ask Jesus so i'm going to use the new the the, the kittle's theological dictionary the new testament he says of the word logismos there are two distinctive uses common to both is the idea of an act of thought according to strict logical rules. Okay? So what Paul is saying is that, you know, we destroy your logic. We rip it to shreds. I preach folly, and my folly destroys your elevated rhetoric and logic. Rip it to pieces. I preach folly, the cross of Christ, and its folly, it's not human logic and it destroys your arguments and your specious reasonings here we see the great division between faithful pastoral care and unfaithful unfaithful care limits itself to the mind unfaithful care specializes in logic in convincing minds unfaithful care is logical care logical care that appeals to the mind. And Paul destroys it. He destroys the reasoning of the super apostles, not by a superior reason, but by a far superior folly, a folly that blasts their worldly wisdom to pieces. It is, it, it's a sign of the tragic day in which we live that more and more people in the evangelical world are trying to teach their children logic. They think they can win the arguments in the agora by teaching their kids to identify ad hominem logic and to know all these logical terms. They think that the mind is the... God has given us the, as pastors the entire human being to work our care upon. We have their feet, we have their toes, we have their fingers, we have their hair, we have their ears, we have their smell. And we have confined ourselves to their ears and their mind. And I tell you, brothers, if you want to change someone, and you have a choice between having the ears and the mind and you have the butt, all right, you want to change someone, I'll take the butt, all right? You give me your butt, and you can have your ears and your mind, because I'm going to make you change, right? Especially if you're young. And and so, but no, we are too smart. We are too elevated. We will not deal with the whole man. We're going to go to the mind, because we're so bright, because it's the mind where the Christian is created. And I say to you, it is the the tragic heresy of our day, that Christians are made in the mind, that faith is a matter of the mind. Preaching and pastoral care has, as, and I say preaching in particular, has as its proper canvas the entire man. We need to be painting the entire man, not just applying our daubs to the mind. The care of a pastor is, is to be care that focuses on action, growth, change, discipleship, and obedience. My parents, when we were growing up, used to mock young parents that they'd see in the store trying to reason with their children about why they should, why they should obey. Uh, I remember, i just spank them, spank them. Yeah, don't reason with them, spank him. And, and yet the, the pastors of the evangelical church have disdained discipline. They've given up the tools that God has given us, tools that destroy logic, that blow apart the elevated rhetoric of the world for what they think is a superior form of elevated rhetoric. And so no discipline None of the tools that God had given Paul. None of this boldness. When I come, I may not be very impressive, but I'm going to have power. We preach as though people are governed by their minds, as though reason is the path to the heart. And it's not. I quoted in church a couple weeks ago, forgive me guys, but I love this quote, Luther, from his final sermon at Wittenberg in 1548 or forty-six, I think, final sermon he preached. He said, but since the devil's bride, how many of you heard this? Uh, I love introducing people to this quote. But since the devil's bride reason, that pretty whore comes in and thinks she's wise. And what she says, what she thinks is, is he's meaning of necessity, is from the Holy Spirit. Who can help us then? Not judges, not doctors, no king or emperor, because reason is the devil's greatest whore. Pastoral care, true pastoral care, aims for the heart, and the heart is best approached through avenues other than human argument and human logic and human reason. I'm not despising logic or reason. I simply claim, the Scripture does, that the highest form of reason and logic is folly to the human mind, the mind that's limited to human forms of logic and reason. Third, the power of pastoral care. Perhaps the greatest verse in this collection of verses focused on this theme of pastoral care, showing us the the pastor in full. The man in full is a pastor. Paul, in the fullness of his power as a pastor. is verse 4 of chapter 10, where Paul writes, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Unlike the apostles of the flesh, Paul is an apostle whose weapons are divinely powerful. Note that in in contrasting his manner of pastoral care with that of the super apostles, Paul refers to his work as warfare and his tools as weapons. He is going to work every day in the church as a soldier and he has weapons, which means he has enemies and he's fighting battles. Can we look this in the face? Can we we accept that our war as pastors is real? And that it's a war not with actually the people of our churches, but with the supernatural forces that hold them in bondage. And To overcome our enemies, we are given weapons, weapons that are divinely powerful, Paul says. So would you fight Goliath, brothers, for the sake of your people, as David did, for the sake of your God, as David did? Would you fight Goliath? Will you fight? Will you have enemies? And if you'd fight the giant that opposes God, will you fight him with your good looks, with the sword and buckler of good breeding and an Ivy League education? Perhaps a Presbyterian Church of America ordination. Or will you take up the rude slingshot of faith? What are you going to use? Power or power? God has given us tools. Church discipline. Power. The keys of heaven given over to the the church of Jesus Christ. Power of the keys, it's called. Power. Some boast in chariots, some boast in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Some boast in their mind, some boast in their looks, some boast in their affiliations. We will boast in the name of Jesus Christ. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Finally, the method of pastoral care, and our final note is, I think, of some importance as we conclude to realize the method. The method of pastoral care of Paul and others. And in this, I'm, I'm going beyond our passage. I'm just asking you to think about what you know about Paul. And even more than Paul, about Jesus. The method. And what we find, brothers, in the Apostle Paul, and even more clearly in Jesus Christ, is a method of pastoral care that steadfastly and enduringly rejects massive ministry in favor of the shaping of individual lives of disciples. Jesus turns aside from the crowds and chooses 12 and continually prefers them over the masses. The masses are an inconvenience and an annoyance in a sense, though he loves them. But he chooses 12. And we know the same is true of Paul. He's constantly speaking about how he was in their home, how he's to be remembered. This person, this person did this, 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 this person. Everywhere he goes, it's people. Our approach has become the, the, you know, that we are, as Tim has said, that we're ranchers. And the question we ask is, what's the question? How many are running? How many are running? Yeah, you know. It's the aggregate, not the individual. You know, I'm running 375 on Sunday morning. How's that sound? Well, not real good today. Back in the seventies it would have sounded pretty good, you know? But right now it's about failure. You know? How many of you running? Jesus' pastoral care was individual, one-on-one. Think about Jesus and the blind man of John 9, kicked out of the synagogue for his for his attestation of the power of Christ, for his his stubborn refusal to knuckle under the Pharisees. And Jesus goes and seeks him out and says, you want to know who it is who did this for you? I'm the one. He goes after the one. And that's the whole point. Yeah. You know, the shepherd goes after the one sheep. The shepherd cares about every sheep. This is the method. The method is not the aggregate. The method is a few. It's those we can, we can lead and who will follow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless our time together. Give us a a vision for pastoral care. Make us men who love Jesus and whose love for Jesus is transparent in our lives, Father. May we be rude and contemptible idiots, but may we blast apart the logic, Father, of this world by the folly that you create within us through your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.